How's everyone this morning? Good. I know it's a little gray out there, and I know that sometimes when it's gray out there, I always know when I drive, I'm driving in, it's a little rainy outside, and it's a little dark. I know you're not going to be as peppy as uh, I would kind of like hope that we would be every Sunday, but we're human beings, and sometimes things affect us, and uh, maybe you're not thinking about the weather, but I just always have to fight against that. Like when the sun wakes me up during the summer, it's a good day. Like I like that. And then in the winter, we all know that it's really hard to get out of bed before nine because the sun doesn't come up then. And so it's just, it's just one of those days where I know that we're all kind of feeling it. It's going to thunderstorm today. So I'll try to be just like super passionate, try to keep you engaged, but uh, I'll do my best. May the Lord help you. Um, today we're starting a new series, and just it's gray outside, and let me just put it this way, the book of Judges is a gray book. It's actually a book that I would describe as a book full of thunderstorms. So, you know, I was actually wrestling with, all right, do I really want to go through the book of Judges during the summer? Because honestly, it's a bit of a downer and there's a lot of really difficult things that happen. And sometimes I know that when we're reading things that aren't as quote unquote upbeat, sometimes we'll be like, man, can you just like encourage me a little bit? I'll encourage you and we'll challenge you. But here's the thing about God's word. It meets us in the reality of what life is actually like. Sometimes we all want things just to be super positive all the time. And I love being positive. Negative people drain me. But God's word speaks to things as they really are. And I don't know if you realize that even though the sun may shine this summer, we live in a dark and broken world. And that's where we're going to meet the book of Judges, within the midst of our dark and broken world because we see where they lived was a dark and broken world. Sometimes when we read the Bible, maybe you've had this experience, especially the Old Testament, be real, isn't it tempting for us to believe that we are somehow more enlightened, more respectable, and more sophisticated than the people we read about in the Old Testament? Did you ever read the Old Testament? You're like, what is wrong with these people? Like, have they ever even read a book before? Like, they are just wild and strange. And what we tend to conclude is that the passing of time has made us, catch this, we tend to conclude that the passing of time has made us fundamentally better people than those we read about in the pages of the Old Testament. They were barbaric, uneducated, and didn't have smartphones or the internet. Boy, were they stupid and weird. Like, isn't that those conclusions we can come to? And though the daily life and cultural customs might have looked different, people really haven't changed at all. The book of Judges is summed up by one simple verse that's at the very end of the book of Judges. Chapter 21, verse 25. This is what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Wow. That sounds really different from America 2016. People don't do that at all today, do they? People don't live without a king and do whatever they think is best in their own eyes. Despite the gap of over three millennia, we will see lots of parallels between our lives and the book of Judges. The book of Judges comes immediately after the book of Joshua. Judges chapter one, verse one reads this. After the death of Joshua, 
the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? So I just want to kind of bring you into the story because you're just like, I, I'm a little sleepy. All of a sudden you just read me a, a verse out of the book of Judges. I'm not really sure what you're talking about or what's happening. So let me help you kind of understand the book of Judges in light of the rest of Scripture. So Joshua, who's Joshua? Joshua took leadership of Israel after the death of Moses. You've heard of him, or at least you've heard of Charlton Heston. Moses led the Israelites in their exodus out of Egypt. So you remember, let my people go. And Moses leads the Israelites. They, you know, they, they have all these miraculous things, the ten plagues, the parting of the sea. They walk through it on dry ground. Pharaoh's army gets destroyed. And then they go on a 40-year camping trip. Sounds awesome, where they just kind of camp in a circle. Like, you don't want to do that. If I said, hey, here's what you're going to do the next 40 years of your life, you're going to walk around the desert with two million of your closest friends with a tent, and you're just going to keep going in circles and circles and circles. That was Moses' leadership. And right after Moses died, Joshua, Moses' aide, took control of Egypt, or excuse me, Israel, but that's a big preacher mistake right there, took control of Israel, and it was his job to lead the Israelites into the promised land, the land that God had promised Abraham. And so the book of Joshua tells us the story of God helping his people into their new homeland. But here's the catch. Their new homeland was inhabited by seven different groups of people that we generally call the Canaanites. And God had commanded Joshua and he commanded the Israelites, you are going to take possession of the land of Canaan and you are supposed to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. You're either going to kill them or you're going to just chase them away and they're going to move away. And you're going to say, this is our home now, and you're going to set up shop. And the land that God promised Israel, Joshua was going to lead the Israelites into. But here's the thing. Possessing the promised land was a process that was going to take several decades. The Israelites still needed to be obedient, courageous, and faithful to God even after the death of Joshua. Joshua died before the task was finished. So the book of Judges is the time right after Joshua dies. And what's strange is God really doesn't raise up an identifiable leader for the Israelites after the death of Joshua. The Israelites were supposed to have God as their king. They were supposed to be a theocracy. And so they were supposed to follow God's leadership into the promised land. He didn't want to raise up another human leader. Israel was just supposed to follow. There wasn't a Moses or a Joshua. And so Israel was meant to drive out the rest of the Canaanites. That's why... The first question, the first verse of the book of Joshua, or the book of Judges, Lord, who will fight the Canaanites first? Verse 2, the Lord answers. So the, the Israelites, they're like, okay, let's go, let's go take this land. We got to go fight some Canaanites. Lord, which tribe do you want to go first? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. So just one more piece of background. In Israel, how many tribes were there? <laughs> 
12, all right, I know some of you said of it, some of you just grunted because you didn't know, it's okay, it wasn't a trick question. There were 12 tribes, and 11 of those 12 tribes, except the tribe of Levi, because those were the priests of Israel, got land. So the Levites didn't get land, but the other 11 tribes got land, and so they say, God, which tribe do you want to go first and settle into the promised land? Judah is to go, I have given the land into their hands. Verse 3. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, Hey, come with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. So you're reading the book of Judges and you're like, the, the Israelites are like, Okay, God, we want to do what you want us to do. Who do you want to go first? Judah's to go. Okay, and Judah says, we'll go. Oh, and by the way, God, I know you said Judas to go, but we're just going to ask the Simeonites. Hey, Simeonites, do you want to come too? I know God just said we're supposed to go, but why don't you guys just come with us? Because it doesn't really, I mean, that's fine. He's probably fine with it. When Judah attacked, verse 4, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. Now, I just want to say there are a lot of names in the book of Judges that are hard to pronounce. If you're a Hebrew scholar and I butcher one, don't write me. Like, just pray for me, okay? Like, these are hard to read. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek. Sounds like a great guy. And fought against him. Putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites, Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut, off, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. That was not the command. The command was not take prisoners and torture them. The command was drive out the Canaanites. We'll pick up the story in verse 17. Just more of Judah taking over the promised land. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephtha. And they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. And then listen to verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. So catch this. Apparently, we serve a God who's strong enough to drive the Canaanites out of the cities and out of the hill country, but if iron chariots get involved in the plains, he's too weak for that. So listen to the last verses of Judges. I'm going to skip down to verse 27. And the rest of Judges chapter 1, notice how Israel didn't exactly do what God had told them to do. So these names, a lot of them are Israel's tribes. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Ibliam or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. But the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalol. I don't know if that's how you say that. Who remained among them. But they did sub subject them to forced labor. Oh, that's good. You, you, we're not going to make you leave, but you have to work for us. 
nor did Asher drive out those living in Echo or Sidon or Alab or Akzib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob or something else. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. But the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Hanap became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites. Danites were a tribe of Israel. To the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold on to Mount Harris, Ajalon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass. That's a cool name, right? I want to live there. I'm going to start a town called Scorpion Pass. To Selah and beyond. All right, so some of you are like, what's happening? Is this the Bible? I'm tired. I don't understand any of these names. Can't we just go with Royersford and Limerick? But when you read this chapter, and yes, these names are ancient and hard to understand. When you read this chapter, you get the impression that the Israelites are sort of doing what God had asked them to do. God had asked them to drive out the people from the land, and what do they do? They sort of do it. The Judah did a pretty good job, but all the other tribes, they didn't exactly force the Canaanites out. They let them stay and say, hey, you guys can stay and basically be our slaves. So I counted up through the whole book, or the, through the whole chapter one of Judges. Eleven times in Judges chapter one, the Israelites sort of obeyed God. But if they sort of obeyed God 11 times, that means that they disobeyed God 11 times. And so when you read chapter 1, you're kind of like, what am I supposed to think about what's happening in Judges chapter 1? Thankfully, the Lord tells us exactly what he thinks about what the Israelites are doing, going to war and not exactly driving out the Canaanites. Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The angel of the Lord came. Now, the angel of the Lord is God's official spokesperson, okay? He's like an envoy of God. When the angel of the Lord spoke, it was like God speaking. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bochim. Bochim means weeping. And there in Bochim, they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So, the first chapter of Judges actually reveals to us the spiritual character of Israel. They seek God and ask Him to direct them, but they are willing to cut some corners. They were willing to obey God's directive to drive out the Canaanites until it got hard. I think their actions could best be summed up as half-hearted obedience. 
half-hearted obedience. So when I was in Bible college, I went to school at University of Valley Forge. I graduated in 2006. My favorite professor in school was Dr. Daniel McNaughton. He started this church. He was one of my mentors, and I love that guy. But he was a tough professor. If you ever met Daniel, he's really nice and mild and kind and like one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. But in the classroom, he's nice, mild, and kind and a really tough grader. And so Daniel had this class, the book of Acts, and he taught us through the book of Acts. And I'm telling you, that was one of my favorite classes in college. There were moments where Daniel would be teaching us, and I would just sense, as he was teaching us the Bible, God's presence would just be so thick in that room in a group of teenagers and people in their early 20s. And there was something where God was just speaking to our hearts. I loved that class. But I hated the tests. See, every week, Daniel would assign us one scripture verse that we were supposed to memorize. And we had to write that scripture verse down on the test every week. So over the course of a semester, there were 14 or 15 scriptures. Just one verse. Let's be real. If you're in Bible college, you should be able to memorize one verse of one book a week. Amen? I mean, you're like, yeah, you should definitely do that. I mean, if you're studying to be an engineer, you got to memorize a lot of stuff. It's not unreasonable that Bible college students would have to memorize one verse of scripture a week for one class. A totally reasonable request. But students hated it. Do you know why? Because on the test, you would have to memorize the one verse in the New International Version, the NIV. And so you would remember the scripture, and then you would have to write it at the top of your quiz. And so you'd write it down, and then you'd hand it in, and then you'd get it back, and it would almost always be wrong. Do you know what he marked wrong? Even one mistake was wrong. If you put a comma in the wrong spot, zero points. If you put a the instead of an and, zero points. If you put it's instead of it is, zero points. And some of you are like, man, that's not fair. And all the students would get all honked off. What about partial credit, man? And he'd be like, mostly right isn't right. Mostly right is still wrong. When we read the first chapter of Judges and you see the Israelites doing what God asked them to do, sort of, what does God call that? Disobedience. See, here's the thing. God considers half-hearted obedience disobedience. This morning I want to let God's word just challenge us, rebuke us, encourage us, inspire us as we speak about the dangers of half-hearted obedience. I want to share with you four things about what it means to be a person of half-hearted obedience. And these are all right from the text. First thing we know about half-hearted obedience is that it is a lack of faith. Half-hearted obedience is a lack of faith. Look at this verse that's on the screen. Notice that God's indictment of Israel begins with reminding them of all that he has done for them. I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you the land I promised your forefathers. I made a covenant with you. Why is God reminding the Israelites of his past faithfulness to them? 
because his faithfulness to them in the past should have been sufficient evidence that they can obey him in the present. At the root of their half-hearted obedience was a failure to remember all that God had done for them. The reason Israel disobeyed God, the reason we disobey God, is because we don't trust him. We don't trust him. At the core of your disobedience, think about an area of your life right now where maybe you're wrestling and you're struggling and, and maybe you've, you've heard me preach about things before that I've said, hey, the Bible calls this sin and you've just kind of said, listen, I know that you say the Bible says that's sin, Joe, but I'm just going to put that over here for now because I think that I'm, I'm mostly living for God, but I'm not really going to surrender this area over here. Do you know at the core of your decision to walk in disobedience against God is a failure of faith, a failure of trust? We don't have the faith to believe that his ways are best, his wisdom is perfect, and his provision is enough. When we forget who God is, like Israel driving out the Canaanites or not driving out the Canaanites, forget who God is. We take things into our own hands and we do our own, own thing. But when we remember who God is, when we remember that he has always been faithful, when we remember that he has never once abandoned us, we're going to live in radical obedience to what he tells us to do. And I'll just say this to us. We can't radically, joyfully, and sacrificially obey God if we lose sight of who he is and forget about what he's done. So this is how the Christian life is supposed to work for you. As God calls you to deeper and deeper obedience to him and his word, what you're supposed to be able to say is, as I look back on my past and I look back on my life, even before I met Jesus, God had never forsaken me. God has never abandoned me. Anything that God had asked me to do, and I did it, it always turned out better for me. See, when we fail to obey, we're failing at faith. Here's the second thing. Half-hearted obedience is full of excuses. Chapter 1, verse 19, says about Judah, they weren't able to drive the Canaanites from the plains because the the Canaanites had iron chariots. What a weak God. Iron chariots. He can't possibly defeat an army with iron chariots. Sure, he destroyed his, or Egypt's army by drowning them in the sea. Oh, but those guys have iron chariots. Ah, we'll just mail it in. We got them out of the hill country. We got them out of the cities. But the plains, you know, Canaanites enjoy the plains. They sound so plain and boring. Just have fun out there. For the men of Judah... They were willing to be obedient until they came up against an army that was more technologically advanced than they were. And what does God call their failure to defeat the Canaanites with iron chariots? Disobedience. The Israelites were saying, we can't do that. And God was saying, you won't do that. What Israel saw as a good common sense reason not to obey God God saw as a flimsy excuse. 
Do you know that God has never put any one of us in a situation where obedience was impossible? There has never been a moment in your life or in my life when we couldn't obey God. But there have been several moments in your life and my life when we wouldn't obey God. Have you ever thought about the difference between can't and won't? Can't and won't. Let me tell you something I can't do. I can't make the U.S. men's gymnastic team. Like, I can't do that. How do you, I know that to be true? Because I can't do a somersault. That seems to be one of the requirements. I am the least flexible person you know. I shouldn't be tumbling or on the rings or on the uneven bars. I shouldn't be in a leotard. I know I can't be on the U.S. men's Olympic team. But you know what I won't do? I won't run a marathon. I don't want to do that. Could I run a marathon? If I trained, I mean, I run like three miles three times a week. I'm not close to a marathon. But here's the truth. Barring injury or, you know, death while I'm running, I probably could run a marathon. If I trained real hard for the next year, I bet you I could do it, but I won't do it. Some of you are like, I'm going to motivate Joe to run a marathon, but I won't do it. And in our spiritual lives, it's the same way. What we're saying, God, I can't do that, what you're really saying is, God, I won't do that. Those chariots are made of iron. So what about you? Where in your life have you convinced yourself that you can't obey God? When in actuality, you just flat out won't obey God. I've come up with examples. You're like, thank you so much. You're welcome. What about this? I can't forgive that person who has hurt me. That's not true. You just won't. I can't spend time with God regularly. I hear this one a lot. I can't do that. Yes, yes, we can. Like we actually could if we wanted to. This one will sting. I can't tithe. Nope, can't do that. You can't or you just won't. You won't because you'll feel the sacrifice too deeply. You won't because you'll feel, you'll feel the pain. You won't because you're going to have to tell yourself no in other areas of your life and you're just not going to do that. It's not that you can't, it's that you won't. I can't overcome this temptation. That's one of my favorites. Oh, I can't stop doing this. Oh, really? You can't stop getting angry at your kids? It's not that you can't stop, it's that you won't stop. I can't have a good attitude at work. No, you won't have a good attitude at work. I can't tell that person the truth. No, you won't tell that person the truth because you're afraid they won't like you if you tell them the truth. I can't control my temper. There are some people whose brain chemistry may actually make it difficult for them to control their temper, maybe even impossible. But some of us have tempers that it's just sin that we're just allowing to reign in our life. It's not that we can't control our temper, it's just that we won't control our temper. I can't stop gossiping. Actually, what I won't do is call it gossip so I can keep doing it. Do you know what the truth is in all these things? And there are like 700 other examples. It's not that we can't, it's that we won't. When we decide that obedience is too difficult, 
we make excuses. Excuses are how we justify our disobedience. And you know what God did with Israel and what he does with you and I when we hide behind excuses? What does God do with Israel when he hides behind, when they hide behind excuses? Let me put it to you this way, because a lot of us don't think about God's love, grace, and mercy in these moments. We think, oh, this is really challenging, or I don't want to hear this, or, you know, this is just too harsh. It's not harsh at all. God, catch this, out of his incredible mercy, love, and grace for you and for me, out of love, grace, and mercy, he confronts us in our self-deception. See, God loves us too much to let us keep believing lies. That's real love. You're like, well, that doesn't feel very good. Love is not a feeling. It's an action. It's a decision. Some of us won't love the people in our lives who really need to be loved because we're afraid to really do the hard work of love, which is confronting them with the truth. But God's not afraid to confront us because he loves us and he cares for us. God loves you enough this morning to tell you and to tell me, friend, it's not the chariots are made of iron. That's actually not it. It's that you're unwilling to trust me and obey me. Where are you saying I can't when the truth is you won't? Third thing, half-hearted obedience has consequences. Half-hearted obedience has consequences. This is what God says to the Israelites, I will not drive them out before you because Israel wouldn't drive the Canaanites out. God says, I'm not going to do it. If you're not going to obey, I'm not going to drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods, lowercase g, will be a snare to you. So, so this is an important moment of the message, just so we can think theologically. The reason God commanded the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites from the promised land was not because of ethnic cleansing or imperialism or because he wanted to feel the Canaanites were like, God's just a big dictator. Why does God command Israel to drive out the Canaanites? Because he was after the spiritual purity of Israel. God says to them, you did not break down their altars. Their altars. The Canaanite religion was attractive because of its highly erotic nature. God knew the fragility of his people. He knew that the Israelites would end up becoming like the Canaanites. And that's exactly what the book of Judges is about. The book of Judges is all about how the Israelites disintegrated spiritually because of the influence of the Canaanites. Notice that God says that the gods of the Canaanites would end up being a thorn in their side and a snare to them. As Israel wandered from God and chose false religion instead of faithfulness, Israel self-destructed. That's what happens to us. When we choose idols over Jesus, our lives melt and self-destruct. When we disobey God, it's usually because we think we will be better off for it. When we compromise spiritually, we don't do it because we want our lives to fall apart. We do it because we think the pleasure will be worth it. But every single time we choose disobedience, we are always facing consequences. And we are always dealing with the fallout. 
if Israel would have obeyed the Lord, if we would obey the Lord, life is a lot less painful. I hope, I hope that as you're following Jesus and you're obeying Jesus, I hope that what you're seeing in your life is not that your life is somehow magical and easy. I need to be very clear about this. People have faithfully obeyed God and got their heads cut off, okay? So I'm not saying that obedience leads to a big mansion and, a, and lots of cars and lots of money everywhere. That's not at all what I'm saying, that the Bible doesn't teach that. But what I am saying is that obedience always leads to your joy, your wholeness, and your fulfillment. See, it's as we surrender and submit to God, and we do things His way instead of our way, that we experience the full and abundant life Jesus promised us. Obedience always leads to more joy. Disobedience always leads to consequences. Here's the last thing. Half-hearted obedience isn't resolved by half-hearted repentance. Half-hearted obedience isn't resolved by half-hearted repentance. So what do the Israelites do after the angel of the Lord shows up? They have a worship worship service. And they start crying. And they start making sacrifices with the animals. So you look at this moment in the history of Israel, and what does it look like? It looks like this is super authentic. Like if, if, if one of you were in sin today, and I came, and we had a private conversation, maybe you were having an affair, and I challenged you, and I said, it is wrong to be sleeping around on your spouse, and you need to change, and you just broke down, and you began to weep, and, and, and Isaac got on the piano, and you wanted to just sing how deep the Father's love for us, and you're like, oh my goodness, I just want to give because God is so good. And we all see you over there like a hot mess just weeping and crying. And you're like, I can't believe how good the Lord is. We'd all leave here thinking, wow, they really had an experience with God. That looks like real repentance to me. Do you know this is the only time in the book of Judges that this happens? Do you know it takes almost no time at all for Israel to go back to their old ways? Until you read the rest of Judges, you don't realize that this was the shortest-lived revival in history. Israel wasn't just half-hearted in their obedience. They were half-hearted in their repentance as well. I think like the Israelites, we are ripe for counterfeit repentance when we feel the initial consequences of our disobedience. A lot of us become real contrite when our life starts falling apart. It's nice to experience emotion when you realize you've done the wrong thing. In my own life, there have been moments when God has convicted me of sin in my life and I've wept. It's nice to run back to church. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you're just trying to get your life back on track because you've done the wrong thing and you're just here because you're like, "Ah, I need more of God in my life. Listen, I'm happy you're here but don't play games. See, sometimes people come back to church until they feel cleaned up, and then they're just like, ah, God, okay, I feel better, and kind of the sense of guilt and shame is gone. I'm just going to go back to what I was doing before. God, I don't really need you that bad. It's nice to say you're going to commit to a life of obedience. It's nice. You could say, like, oh, I'm going to obey the Lord. 
But do you know what the necessary ingredient to authentic repentance is? Actual obedience. For some strange reason, this is my favorite line in the whole sermon. For some strange reason, we think feeling bad about what we've done is a good substitute for obedience. We have said, if I feel bad about it, that's enough. I don't actually need to change. So the question for us this morning is really simple. Where have we settled for half-hearted obedience in our lives, in our church? I'm not talking about everyone out there. Do you know that this weekend in Washington, D.C., there's tens of thousands of atheists gathered on the National Mall to celebrate Atheist Day? Read some articles about that. They're not even interested in obeying God because they don't believe he's real. They don't believe in a personal God. Obedience doesn't matter to them. They've, they've pushed all possible obedience away from their lives. They don't even want to talk about obedience. But Jesus Christ comes to us and he says, follow me. Follow me. There's a surrendering and a submission to who Jesus is and what Jesus demands from us. I'm reading a book right now called What Jesus Demands from the World, and this author has kind of boiled down all of Jesus' demands. Do you know how many demands Jesus had just boiled down? Like 50. I'm not here this morning saying any of us are obeying God perfectly. So the question needs to be asked for me and for you. Where have you settled for half-hearted obedience in your life? Here's the good news. Today, we don't have to repeat what the Israelites did. The good news is that you can actually repent today. What does it mean to repent? It means to change your mind. Metanoia in the Greek. It's a change of mind that's evidenced by changed behavior. When people were coming to hear John the Baptist preached, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist said to those who are coming to be baptized, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance means to turn away from your disobedience. Doesn't mean that you're going to live a perfect life after this moment. But maybe there's some decisions that you need to make today and turn away from some sins that you know you're babysitting and you're managing and you're just kind of letting them hang out in your life and you haven't confronted them and it's time to turn from disobedience to obedience and don't let that little defense attorney in your head say well I'm obeying God all the way over here but if you're not obeying him here half-hearted obedience is still disobedience Repentance isn't feeling bad that life got hard because you messed up. And maybe most importantly, repentance is not just what we do when we come to Jesus. Repentance is what we do daily as we mourn over our sin, confess our sin, bring our sin to Jesus, and receive His forgiveness. Repentance is always accompanied by the pursuit of obedience.
Some of you are like, well, this is an Old Testament thing. What about, what about Jesus? What about the hope he has? How does Jesus treat us when we're living in a half-hearted way? I'm glad you asked. Do you know what Jesus does when we're living in a half-hearted way? We know exactly how he feels about that. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, there's a church that could be described as half-hearted. The whole church had become half-hearted or lukewarm. The church of Laodicea. And Jesus is the one who speaks to all seven churches in the book of Revelation. And what does Jesus say to a half-hearted church? He says this, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. The love of God is the discipline of God over your life. The love of God rebukes sin. So what does Jesus say to do? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and what? Repent. And then Jesus says these words to all those who are living in a half-hearted way. Just hear the grace and the invitation and the mercy and the love dripping off these words. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they will be with me. This is the call of Jesus to the half-hearted this morning. Jesus is not saying, get away from me, you disgust me. Jesus is not saying, I'm giving up on you, you've been a Christian all this time, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. Jesus is not saying, you've sinned too much, you're too disobedient, you're too half-hearted. Jesus is saying, I love you, I rebuke your sin, I discipline you, but I'm here and I want to come in and I want to just come in and rush into your life and I want to eat with you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be so close to you, even in your half-heartedness, that I want to have dinner with you. Is Jesus knocking today? Is he saying it's time for half-hearted Christianity to go and radical discipleship to stay? Only you can surrender your heart to Christ and some of you are like, are you talking to people who don't know Jesus or people who do know Jesus? I'm talking to people. Where are you at with the living God today? Are you taking him lightly? Let me say this kindly as a, and as a rebuke to our whole church this morning. In a pastorally loving way, sometimes when the music starts at Spring Valley, I feel some half-heartedness. I feel some taking God real lightly. I've had people ask me who visited this church before, why don't the people come in when it's time to worship? And listen, we know that you wanna love people and catch up with people. We know that sometimes some amazing ministry is happening before service, and we're not saying we want that to end. What we are saying is, when we walk into this place and we open up our hearts to the living God, our voices should boom with gladness and joy and gratefulness 
to King Jesus who gave his life for us, who rose from death for us, who sent his spirit to empower us, who gave us a hope and a future. And it's not about how loud you are or how about how quiet you are. But maybe there could be a reverence when we come to this place on a Sunday morning and when the worship leader invites us in that we don't just kind of wander in when we're ready. But we come and we say, I want to meet with the living God today because he has my heart. And this is his time. You're like, that's kind of like about us. It's absolutely about us. He is the Lord of glory. He is the King of kings. He is the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. He is Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the bright morning star. He is the one who is coming back for his church. He is the one who will cut down thrones and rulers and authorities. He's the one who's stronger than presidents and kings. He is Lord of all. He is creator. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Let us not take him lightly. Let us not be that church. Let us not be ashamed to open our mouth and raise our voices to the one true living God. The days are short. And though summer is here, our world is dying without Christ. And we cannot be half-hearted. There is a mission. And there are people who are dying and going to hell. And do we love them? Do we open our hearts to them? Are we zealous for his name? We need the Spirit of God to baptize us afresh so that we can be his witnesses. Like Kevin said this morning, we need to seek the Lord. We need to be hungry for the Lord. We need more of God in our lives. A building will not solve half-heartedness. Only the people of God surrendered to God will do it. Would you stand with me this morning? Can we just raise our hands to the Lord? You're somebody like, I don't do that a lot. That's okay. Can we just lift our hands to the Lord this morning? And can we just begin to say, God, we need you in this place. I need you in my life. I don't want to live a half-hearted discipleship. You have all of who I am, Lord. Can you just do that? I don't want to do it for you. Just call out to him this morning. Invite him in. Welcome him in. Call out to him. It's okay. Raise your voices. Don't be shy. Don't be meek. Just say, God, I need you in this place. God, we need you. God, we need you. Lord, you know exactly where we're at, and we need you, and we want you. Lord, capture our hearts in this place. Holy Spirit, fill us fresh with your power today. Lord, we're going out of this place to be your witnesses. Lord, the world is a hard place to live, and we can, we can come up against a lot of stuff. It's so easy to be apathetic and lukewarm and half-hearted. And Holy Spirit, we don't want that. We want to be empowered and we want to be focused on Jesus. We need you in this place. We need you in our lives. Lord, fill us up fresh today. God, help us not to live a half-hearted Christianity. Lord, we don't want that. We don't want to be like Israel. We don't want to part way obey. We want you to have our whole hearts and our whole lives. Lord, do that work today. Touch us in this place today, Lord. We need you. We love you. 
God, we want to follow you wherever you call us, whatever it means for us, whatever sacrifices you ask us to make. We are your people. We are your plan to reach Royersford, to reach the 422 corridor. We're it, Lord. You're going to use us, but you need us to set us on fire today to be used by you and for your glory. Lord, help us not to be about us. Help us not to be about our music or our preaching or our church. Help us to be about Jesus and his kingdom. Lord, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come and may your will be done at Spring Valley Community Church as it is in heaven. Lord, we want more of you in this house. We want more of you in our lives and we surrender to you and we want you. Jesus, be Lord of all. Speak to us, convict us, call us to repentance, raise us up again, help us to walk with humility. Lord, we need you in this house. We need you in this place. God, no half-heartedness here. Lord, forgive us for where we've been half-hearted. In my own life, Lord, forgive me where I've been half-hearted. God, we want to just give it all to you. You're our king, and we surrender to you. Help us, God. Help us, God. Amen. 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 I love you so much. I hope you know that. I love you, and I care for you, and I just want us to get it as a church. Man, I believe God has such good things in store for us. There are so many lost people all around us, and we just can't afford to just kind of do church and fake it through and just kind of follow Jesus when it's convenient. We need to be sold out for him. And you know what? He loves us on the journey. God bless you today. Two things I want to tell you. First is this. Three things. Drop your orange cards in the bucket on your way out. Number two. Uh, our guests, you're like, this is an awkward sermon to come to as a guest. You know, are you going to be this passionate in the new guest reception? No, I'll get way calmer. Uh, everything will be fine. I'll just, you know, it's, I'll, I'll relax. I'm going to go sit in a chaise lounge for 10 minutes, pour some water on myself, and talk in a much quieter tone. So guests, we'd love to meet you. We'd love to get to know you right over here down this hallway in about 10 minutes. You're welcome. We have a reception prepared for you only about 10 minutes. I won't even talk nearly this long. We'd love to have you. Also tonight at our church offices, if you can make it, just want to have a time in God's presence of worship and prayer. Excited, 6.30. Hope you can be there with us. Love you. See you next week. God bless.